Okay, I think this is uh, up. You may be seated. I just get the chomping at the bit to come to come up and preach, and so let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you again this morning for this uh, time. Thank you for our the uh, church. Thank you for those who are here. Father, we pray that you bless this time. We know that your Word will not return void. Father, I pray for those who don't know you this morning, who hear this, that they would repent and turn to you and believe. Father, I pray for those who do, that they would grow. You would use this to encourage and bring hope. We thank you and praise you for all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, welcome again to Grace Bible Church. Let me read. Let me read our passage of scripture this morning. If you could turn to First Corinthians, chapter fifteen. First Corinthians, chapter fifteen. We read verses one through eight. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believe in, believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than five hundred five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Death. Death. We all face death. And we all must admit that there is an air of mystery when it comes to death. Every one of us, I can almost guarantee every one of us, has contemplated death, especially our own passing, our own death. The question is, does that contemplation scare you. Many of us are afraid to die because we don't know what type of death we will die, and that's understandable. But many of us are afraid to die because we don't know what will happen to us after death. Or we, are, or we tell ourselves we don't know anyway. Some believe that when we die, we just pass into oblivion, no longer in existence. They tell themselves that anyway. Every major religion has their own version of the afterlife. This shows us that the importance that we place on understanding death, and more importantly, what happens after death. Some religions believe that we are reincarnated into another human life, or another life form altogether. 
Hindus believe that in the afterlife, based on one's karma, the soul is reborn as another being in heaven, hell, or a living being on earth, whether human or animal. Buddhist teachings also assert assert that there's a rebirth, though they slightly differ from Hindus. The Islamic religion believes that at death the soul is separated from the body and transferred from this world to the afterlife, where some will be in paradise and others in hell, awaiting a great resurrection for judgment. The Jehovah's Witnesses believe that 144,000 will go to heaven, while others who obey God will live forever on a paradise called earth. They do not believe in hell. They say that God will resurrect billions of people who died in the past so that they can learn about God and have a chance to live in paradise on earth. Only those who ultimately reject God will be annihilated, just be gone out of existence. The Mormons teach three, three levels of heaven. The celestial, celestial kingdom, where the God, the Father, and Jesus Christ abide. This level of heaven is for those who have been righteous and accepted and abide by the teachings of the LDS Church. The terrestrial kingdom, kingdom is for those who have lived respectably, but were blinded by the craftiness of men. The telestial, telestial kingdom is for those who have who received not the gospel of Christ nor the testimony of Jesus. This level will also include liars and sorcerers and adulterers and whoremongers and whoever loves and makes a lie. Now, what I want you to notice is that in each of these religions, our performance here on earth, our performance here on earth sets our eternal destiny. You understand that? Whether it's karma or whether it's our works, our performance here sets our eternal destiny. Now, as you may have discerned, as you may have discerned, there are, these are man's ways of answering the most important question we face as human beings. Where will we spend eternity? It's the most important question. What do you believe about death and the afterlife? You, your eternal future, say this carefully, your eternal future depends upon how you answer that question. But what you believe is of no further consequence. It's no further consequence. What we really need to know is what the Bible says about, about death and resurrection. And beloved, the Bible has much to say about these subjects, and it does not mince words. Here at GBC, we believe that the Bible is the inherent Word of God. The Apostle Paul, and we've, we've heard it read many times, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And as such, as such, we believe that the Word of God, the Word of the Bible, is inspired or literally breathed out by God and is profitable for living the Christian life. The Apostle Peter says that his divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Through the true knowledge of him who has called us into his own glory or by his own glory and excellence. That's 2 Peter 1.3. Later in the same book, in, verse, in 2 Peter 1.19, he says this, 
we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. The point that Peter is making is, is that the Bible, the 66 books of the Bible, the prophetic word is even more sure than any of our experiences. How many books have been written over the past few years about people going to heaven and coming back? and telling us what their experience is. Peter says that this is even is is more certain than any of those things. We can't trust we can't trust those experiences, but we can trust the word of God. Putting it all together, we gain true knowledge of him through the scriptures. We don't need to flounder around and wonder what will happen to us in the afterlife. You don't have to to wonder about that. Oh, we can wonder about, you know, the, the, every, I mean, the, the little aspects of it, right? I mean, we don't know everything, how wonderful it'll be. We just know that it will be wonderful, right? We can know beyond a shadow of a doubt, though, what will happen in the afterlife because he has revealed to us true knowledge of him and true knowledge of what will happen in his word. Now, as we transition, you must understand that these questions about death and resurrection are central, are central to the saving message of the gospel. I want to make sure that you understand. That's what this sermon is all about. These questions about death and resurrection are central to the saving message of the gospel. Ravi Zacharias says this, Outside of the cross of Jesus Christ, there is no hope in this world. The cross and resurrection are at the core of the gospel and are the only hope for humanity. That's the Apostle Paul's point in these verses that we just read, 1 Corinthians 15, 1-8. In these verses, Paul gives three imperatives. Three imperatives concerning the gospel which we preach. We must stand firm in, number one, the gospel's presence. Number two, we must stand firm in the gospel's power. And the third point is we must stand firm in the gospel's proof. Let's look at the first point. We must stand firm in the gospel's presence. Look at verse 1. Paul writes, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also, which also you received, in which also you stand. Now I just said that these questions about death and resurrection are the, are central to the saving message of the gospel. After all, the gospel, the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Now you might ask, salvation from what? You should ask. Salvation from what? What are we being saved from? Beloved, we're being saved from the wrath of God. Just listen to this in Romans 1. It's what Paul writes in Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written but the righteous man shall live by faith. But listen to this in verse 18. Paul says, for, for, and he's explaining something, right? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. You know why we need the gospel? You know what we need to be saved from? 
the wrath of God. The wrath of God upon all ungodliness, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Beloved, if you persist in an ungodly or an unrighteous life, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, then you will suffer the wrath of God. That is not a popular message today. That's not a feel-good message that you're going to hear in many churches today. Many churches are going to try to to bring you in here and and preach something that's going to make you feel good. This is not a feel-good message. This is not a popular message. Now, you might be asking, when will this happen? When When will I experience the wrath of God? Now, there's a, there's a couple of answers to that. There's a couple of answers to that. In, in some ways, if you are in, living an unrighteous life, you are experiencing the wrath of God because He is not going to bless, He's not going to bless a, a, a sinful, unrighteous life. But even if you are experiencing some level of blessing in this world, you may experience good things here on earth, but if you persist in ungodliness, you will ultimately suffer the wrath of God. In Revelation 20, John writes this, Revelation 20, verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, and from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small. See, no one is gonna, no one's gonna escape this, beloved. Standing before the throne's in, throne, and the books were open, and another, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the, de- the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Beloved, the dead will be resurrected, and they will be judged according to their deeds. Now, if we stop there, that would be no different than any other religion. If you're going to be judged according to your deeds, then we're all in trouble. We, uh, we've all got a, a major problem. Because all our deeds are like filthy rags before the Lord. Even, even your good deeds, even the things that you try to do that are good, uh, have, have a, a self-focus about them. They're filthy rags because they're not done for the glory of God. Then he says in Revelation 20, 15, talks, in 2013, the, the sea gives up the dead and Hades gives up the dead and and every and he judges every one of them according to their deeds. And it says, Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Beloved, this is the bad news. If your name is not found written in the book of life, then you will be thrown into the lake of fire to suffer there forever. That is the gospel truth. We can't escape it. God is holy and He does and He will judge sin. Why do you think that people are trying to do away with the, with, with the flood? Why do, why do you think evolution is so important to people to prove? Because they want to show that God didn't judge by the flood and if He didn't judge by the flood, He doesn't judge by, judge sin. But God does judge sin. He is a righteous judge and He's righteous in doing so. In Exodus, 34, 6, the Lord says this of Himself. He says, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. If we stop right there, that's all great news. It's all great news. 
Listen to this, though. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Beloved, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Just listen to Isaiah 45, 23. He says this, I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and righteousness and will not turn back. That to me, every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say of me, only in the Lord are the righteous and the strength and strength. Men will come to him. Listen to this. And all who were angry at him will be put to shame. One day, beloved, you will bow your knee to, to him. Either now in repentance and belief or later in shame. The gospel is the good news that, that God has made a way for us to be reconciled through him or to him through the cross of Jesus Christ. As such, we don't have to face that horrific future. He has made a way. This is Paul's point in, in 1 Corinthians 15.1. He reminds them of the glorious message of the gospel which he preached to them, the message of salvation. The Corinthians themselves were saved from horrific lifestyles of sin and debauchery. Even by pagan standards, Corinth was so morally corrupt that its very name became synonymous with debauchery and moral depravity. To Corinthian eyes, it came to represent gross immorality and drunken debauchery. You know, today we have what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Well, Corinth was that, that day's Vegas. Listen to 1 Corinthians 6 to get an idea of the sins that characterize the people of Corinth, including the people who formed the church. 1 <coughs> Corinthians 6, 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know about you, but it sounds like a list of sins that we see in our own day. But in 6.11 he says this, 1 Corinthians 6.11 Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. This change is the result of the gospel which was delivered to, to Paul by our Lord Jesus. This is the gospel that Paul preached to the Corinthians. This is the gospel which they received. This was the gospel in which they stood. Now let me tell you something else powerful about this verse. Something that's hard to bring out in the English language. Now, just hold with me here. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 1, in which, the gospel in which you also stand. This Greek word translated stand is in the Greek perfect tense. It denotes something that's happened in the past that has abiding and continual results to the present. What this means is then that in the past, sometime in the past, they began to stand. The Corinthians began to stand in the gospel. In other words, they believed, they were justified and sanctified, they were made holy before God. 
And now they continue to stand in the gospel, meaning that it has continued relevance in their lives. Beloved, the gospel not only saves, but it keeps us saved. If you're a believer, you cannot learn enough about the gospel. You cannot hear it enough. None of us have outgrown it. As we grow in the knowledge of what our Lord has accomplished, we grow in sanctification. If you are here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus, I beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. The bad news is that if God does not save you, you are on the road to hell. You will suffer His wrath. This is terrible, terrible news. Your blood would be on my hands if I didn't warn you. Beloved, but the Bible clearly teaches that only those who have believed in the Gospel, the good news that Jesus bore the wrath of the Father for our sins will be saved. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates His own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through Him, who, whom, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Beloved, God is holy, and make no mistake, He will judge all people. But we can be saved from His wrath if we believe in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only way. He is our only hope. And that's Paul's point in this first verse. The Corinthians who had participated in incredibly wicked wicked lifestyles were justified through the blood of Jesus. And you can be too. A crucified Savior was their salvation and a resurrected Savior was their future hope. Beloved, a crucified Savior is your salvation and a resurrected Savior is your only hope for the future. Let's look at the second point. We must stand firm in the Gospel's power. We must stand firm in the Gospel's power. Look at verse 2. Paul writes, by which, you, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. As you will see, as you'll see, uh, this point ties back to the first point. Paul tells the Corinthians that they are saved by the gospel. It's interesting here that Paul uses the present and not the past tense. This is intentional. We've already seen that past belief in the gospel has abiding results to the present. Now Paul says that it is is the gospel that saves us today. Let me put it another way. As Christians, as Christians, we encounter great difficulty in our lives. We have trials and tribulations. We endure great suffering and, and do not put our hope in this world. Tragically, as Christians, we can fall into sinful patterns, but we still have hope through the gospel that Christ not only died for our past sins, but He died for all our sins, past, present, and future. Beloved, our hope in the gospel, 
the good news that Christ has reconciled us to God is all that keeps us going. It is our hope in the Gospel that keeps us from total despair. Amen, brother. And it gives us great joy. Beloved, I don't know how unbelievers make it through life. If you're sitting here today and you don't truly believe, I don't know how you make it. Because if you look at this world, and this world is what you're finding your hope in, it's 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 passing away. Many turn, as you well know, to alcohol and drugs, sex, false religions. Many put their trust in their looks, their intelligence, their worldly success, their power, their money. But beloved, these, these worldly pleasures are fleeting. But this is not true for the, the believer in the Lord Jesus. Listen to James in James 1.12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Our Lord has promised the crown of life for those who persevere. Especially those who persevere under trial. This is our source of great hope. And it's what keeps us going. Because we know that this life is passing away. And we know that there is no hope in this life. Some of you might be saying, well, this hope is what keeps us standing in Christ. And some of you might be asking, are you saying that you can lose your salvation? Absolutely not. Those who are truly His will stay His. Let me illustrate this to you. Turn to 1 Thessalonians 1.5. In 1 Thessalonians 1.5, Paul writes this. It says this, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full, and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. In other words, Paul didn't just preach mere words, but he gave them the gospel of Jesus Christ in power. Mere words may change us for a moment. Make sure we understand this. Mere words may change us for a moment or even for a few months, but the gospel has a power, the power to change us for eternity. Let me give you an illustration. I can read a self-help book, and, and I can change a few things about my life. But have you noticed that these rarely work? As soon as that self-help book fades into the, into the past, I am no longer motivated by it. I can be motivated for a little while by the motivational words, but these don't last. Do you know that January is the busiest month of the year at your local gym? Right? One time I heard a gym regular say, just give it a month or two, these newbies will be gone. She was right. She was right. Because people don't stay at it. They can't stay at it under their own power generally. But this is not the nature of the Gospel. Paul says that the Thessalonians' obvious life change proved to be the power, proved the power of the Gospel, that is, and the effectiveness of Paul's ministry. In 1 Thessalonians 1.8, he says, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith is toward God has gone forth. 
So we have no need to say anything, for they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you. In other words, everyone heard about their faith, who heard about their faith, knew the story, and understood the result of the gospel's power. Paul didn't have to say this is what happened. Paul didn't have to to point to them. Their their own faith was sounding forth. And everybody that heard the story knew what had happened. These next verses affirm this profound change in the Thessalonians. Just listen. It says this, And how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. They turned from, from their idols to serve a living and true God. And now they're waiting for, for His Son from heaven, verse 10, whom He raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. But here's the most profound part. Here's the most profound part. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says this, For you yourselves know, brethren, or brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. Now that seems like almost a throwaway line. But it's not. Remember that that perfect tense I told you about? This is in the perfect tense. Paul is saying that we came and we preached the gospel to you. We came and we preached the gospel to you and your lives completely changed. You turned from idols to serve a living and true God. And guess what? You're still serving a living and true God. In spite of all that you go through, in spite of the trials and tribulations, you're still serving a living and true God. In other words, the Paul's greatest proof of the power of the gospel is that they not only turn from idols to serve the a living and true God, but they continue to serve Him. <clears throat> Beloved, the gospel's power is shown by the profound change in the lives of those who believe it. And the gospel's power is proven by the perseverance of those who have believed. Did you get that? gospel's power is shown by the profound change in the lives of those who believe it. And the gospel's power is proven by the perseverance of those who have believed. Turn back to 1 Corinthians 15. Paul confirms this by saying in verse 2, If you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Paul's not saying that you can lose your salvation, brethren but that your belief is proven to be true by your perseverance. You see the, you see the difference? Your belief is proven to be a true belief by your perseverance. Those who truly believe will persevere and continue to stand in the truth. When Christians stand in the truth of the Gospel through great tribulation, we demonstrate the power of the Gospel not only to save, but to keep us safe. When Christians fall into sin and repent, again, they demonstrate the power of the gospel. Not that we should sin, the grace abound. But when, when it does happen, when we repent, we demonstrate. We demonstrate that Christ's power in our lives through his gospel. Paul says this is true unless you believed in vain. There is a belief that is shallow and non-saving. It's at the surface level. James says in James 2.19 that the, the demons believe and they shudder. This type of belief is demonic. The question is, have you truly believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Will you persevere through 
standing in the gospel no matter the cost. In other words, is your life a demonstration of the gospel's power? Paul said that the Thessalonians had turned from their idols to serve a living and true God. Where is your hope? Have you turned from your idols to serve a living and true God? Is your hope in vain things which charm you most? Or is your hope fixed upon the sacrifice of Christ? Now some of you may be thinking, well, what about the resurrection? I thought this was resurrection day. Well, let's take a a quick look at point number three. We must stand firm in the gospel's proof. Look at the text. Paul writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance also what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance to the Scriptures. Paul says that the gospel is, is of first importance. It is our highest priority. We must know and believe the gospel which Paul says he delivered to the Corinthians by which they were saved. This is the gospel which Paul received himself. The gospel which he constant, or preached under constant threat. Now Paul takes the time to explain the non-negotiables of God's gospel. According to Paul, the first non-negotiable of the gospel is that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. In chapter 1, Paul told the Corinthians, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. We preach Christ who has died for our sins in accordance to the Scriptures. Beloved, we preach a Messiah who died a gruesome death for our sins in accordance with what the Bible says. Jesus endured great torture at the hands of evil men who were skilled in causing suffering. Jesus endured great physical pain at the the cross. Consider these words written by the prophet Isaiah. This is many years prior to this to this, this event. It says this, He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He did not open His mouth. Like a lamb led to slaughter, just like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so He did not open His mouth. He suffered great physical pain at the cross and then the events leading up to the cross. He suffered this at the hands of men, but the suffering endured from the Father was much, much, much greater. Remember I said that we are saved from the wrath of God? Listen to Isaiah 53.10. It says, But Yahweh was pleased to crush Him, putting Him to grief if He would render Himself as a guilt offering. Beloved, to defeat sin, Jesus had to take sin upon Himself and endure the wrath of the Father for the sins of the world. Can you imagine how horrific that was? I mean, I know my own sin. And I know how the horrific things I've done. Can you imagine the sins of the world being taken upon the Son? The wrath of the Father poured out. To defeat death, though, Jesus had to meet death head on. This leads us to the second non-negotiable of the Gospel. Christ was buried in the tomb. Paul simply says in verse 4 that He was buried. Beloved, His death, Jesus' death, was no ruse. 
Jesus died on the cross for our sins and He was buried. In other words, if I should say it a different way, He was truly dead. The Apostle John, we referenced it earlier, the Apostle John records that on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. It is finished. And He gave up His Spirit. John gave further proof of this by saying that when the soldiers came, they saw that he was already dead, but they didn't break his, his legs to suffocate him because they, they wanted to take him down. The, the Jews wanted to be taken down. But it says this, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. Signifying that he truly, no man could have survived this. He died on that cross. John says of this, and he who has seen, he's speaking of himself, he who has seen, this is John 19.35, he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows he is telling the truth, so that uh, you also may believe. John himself, the Apostle John himself, saw these things, and he's telling the truth. And John suffered greatly for what he believed, but he never changed his account. After this, they took the body of Christ and they laid laid Him in the grave, or prepared it for the grave, and they laid Him in the new tomb in the garden where no no one had been laid, and they placed a large stone over the entry. Jonathan read it earlier. It is powerful, beloved. It is powerful that the eyewitnesses of the death and burial of our Lord has ne- have never changed their story. They've never changed their story. In most cases, they suffered greatly for it, but they ne- never changed what they saw. They never varied from what they said because every word is true. Men won't die. Men won't suffer and die for a lie, generally speaking. They won't suffer and die for a lie. Yet that's what happened. Third non-negotiable, Christ Christ was raised from the dead. Paul writes that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Beloved, this, you you might ask yourself, I'm preaching the Gospel on on Resurrection Day. And I'm, I'm focusing on the cross almost more than I'm focusing on the Resurrection. But I'm here to tell you that if it were not, if it's not for the resurrection, the cross means nothing. If the resurrection did not occur, the gospel is not true. If he was not resurrected, resurrected, then we will not be resurrected to reign with him. Adrian Rogers says this: the resurrection is not merely important to the historic Christian faith. Without it, there would be no Christianity. It is the singular doctrine that elevates Christianity above all other world religions, end quote. I started the sermon by looking at what different religions believe about death and the afterlife. Our worship of a resurrected Savior differentiates Christianity from other religions. Beloved, there is no good news if Christ did not conquer the grave. And it is instructive for us to understand that Paul was not arguing for the resurrection of Christ in chapter 15. It was a known fact. 
he was arguing that Christians will be raised as a result of Christ's resurrection. See, people were denying bodily resurrection. But Christ was saying, or but Paul was saying, because Christ was raised, you will be raised. It's a, it's a proven known fact. Later in chapter 15, Paul says this in verse 16, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then also, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. H.A. Ironside says this, the gospel is the gospel of the risen Christ. There would be no gospel for sinners if Christ had not been raised. Beloved, we have no hope outside of the resurrection. But here's the mo- here are the most glorious words in the Bible. In 1 Corinthians 15.20, But now Christ has been raised from the dead. He has. We serve, we worship a risen Savior. This brings us to the fourth non-negotiable of the Gospel. The resurrection is a proven fact. Look at verse 5. 15.5 He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom, of whom are still alive, some, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. The resurrection of Jesus has been continually attacked by doubters. The the newsman Peter Jennings says this, I was raised with the notion that it is okay to ask questions. And it was okay to say, I'm not sure. He says this, though, I believe, but I'm not quite so certain about the resurrection. I don't understand why Peter Jennings would doubt the resurrection. I want you to know that in these four verses, Paul gives more proof for the resurrection of Christ than we have for any other historic event that has happened in the history of this world. Billy Graham says this, there's more evidence that Jesus rose from the dead than there is that Julius Caesar ever lived or that Alexander the Great died at the age of 33. Facts that we just take for granted. Not only did Christ appear to all these people, but most, if not all of them, suffered and even died because of their proclamation of the Gospel. 1 Corinthians 15.8 is is very important in in this aspect. We know that Christ appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus and that He was miraculously saved. By his own account, Paul says that if anyone could put confidence in the flesh, he could far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Paul, Paul had everything in that culture. Paul was at the pinnacle of the Jewish culture of the time. That's that's Philippians 3, 5, and 6, by the way. Now I ask you, 
Who would be willing to give up everything for a lie? Who would? Give up everything for a lie. The only answer is that Christ did conquer sin and death, and He did appear to Paul on that road to Damascus. Paul truly saw the risen Christ. That is the only answer. I've heard it said, just on a side note, I've heard my professors say, get your church to trust Paul. Get them to trust Paul, because that's, that's the key. You can trust Paul. You know why you can trust Paul? Because Paul wouldn't have done what he did for a lie. Listen to Paul's defense before Festus in Acts 26, 22. So having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets, the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that the Christ was to suffer, and that by reason of His resurrection from the dead, He would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Listen to verse 24. This is Acts 26-24. While, while Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. Paul said this in verse 25. I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. I utter the words of sober truth. As we close, just listen to Paul's words of great hope in 1 Corinthians 15-51. Paul says this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of the eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. For this, for this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on imperish, the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying which is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The, death, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. With other religions, our destination is determined by our works here on earth. But it's not that way with Christianity. Brothers and sisters, Christ Jesus has done all the work. Let that sink in. He has done all the work. He has defeated sin and death. All we must do is believe. All we must do is believe. Beloved, it is because Christ has conquered death, because He is, in fact, risen, that we will reign with Him forever in a new heaven and a new earth where God dwells among men. Listen to this as we close. Revelation 24. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
and there will no longer be any death, and there no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write these words are faithful and true. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You this morning again for these true words of the Scripture. These words which we can have hope in. Our flesh may want to go after this world, but we know that there's no hope in it. There's only hope to be found in a crucified Savior who has risen and who now reigns at the right hand of the Father. To Him we give all the praise. And it's in His name we pray.